Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. Things are really good here in Andrea Town. I'm super excited for you guys to hear my guest today. I'm totally out of breath from climbing the stairs. The podcast studio is on the second floor and my fat ass is out of shape. Does anybody else like have times when they like really go to the gym like nonstop and start to feel really good and then just stop going completely and sit around the house like a fat fuck and eat everything? Just me? Okay. (laughs) Anyway, I'm really excited for you guys to hear my guest today. Uh, Him and I have known each other for over 10 years. Um, Very funny comedian and an actor And he also teaches uh, classes in comedy. Just a super talented guy. Today we have Greg Wilson, Greg Romero Wilson. Um, When I met him, he was the Greg Wilson. We get into all that on the show. But um, we really get into some deep, poignant conversations about his father and what got him into stand-up. And super fascinating guy. We had a lot of fun, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So, that's it. Mix up, Andrew Town, all aboard! Andrea. Greg. Do you ever go by Gregory? Or has it always been Greg? Um, you know, what's funny, uh, when I was, when I first started acting as a kid, I never went by Gregory, like in person, like speaking to people. But when I first started acting as a kid in the eighties, uh, you know, Anthony Michael Hall, you know, everybody did this three name thing. Yeah. So my, so my agent was like, you should be Gregory David Wilson. And, uh, and so I went by Gregory David Wilson at the very beginning of my career. Wow. So since the eighties, anyway, well, let's, let's, I definitely want to talk about that, but let's just do a quick introduction. Um, so this is when I met you, you were the Greg Wilson. You, so I'm, I'm yes, <laughs> I'm seeing that a pattern. Was, I've gone through so, I've had so many aliases. I keep changing my name. <laughs> I just love it. I don't know. I adapt to the times. I love it. I love it. There's been a lot, but that, that was when I first met you and that was at the ha ha. And, um, and, and Greg and I have known each other. It's gotta be what, like almost 10 years now. Probably at least that, yeah, because when we meet around 2006, it's 2018 now, so somewhere in there. Wow, 2006, wow. 2007, so it's at least 10 years. Now. We were babies, we were babies. But I remember I, I was just starting out in comedy, and um, and it was the Greg Wilson. And no, actually, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. No, when I first met you, when I was working at the Laugh Factory, and I was booking the shows, and I remember your manager used to call me, and... Uh, and I was like, who is this guy? The Greg Wilson. It just sounded so official. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I can tell you the, the thing about the Greg Wilson, it really started. This is from now we move into the 90s. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the the nascent days of the internet. And my buddy, and this is I I love to tell the story because my buddy, he's a great guy, he's a handwriting expert. We've known each other forever, but he has the most unfortunate name in the history of the universe. His name Mm. is Bart Baggett. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. They sent their child to school named Bart Baggett. Right? Like, they just... Now I I gotta tell you what's so funny about that to me is that I dated a guy named Bart and his his full name was well I won't say his last name but his first name was Bartlett and his middle name was Eugene and Oof. oh my God the hell the, the 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 comments that I got from my friends when I would introduce him as my boyfriend Bart they were like what and, and that's the thing is and that's the thing is that's just you from your friends introducing him I mean this guy had to live with this. Oh. And he's handled it with a plum, and he has an incredible sense of humor. And he's a great guy. He's a handwriting expert. He's been on a million shows. He's helped out with a lot of court cases. You know, um, he's he's really an amazing guy. It's just that you know, with this name, it, it, you know, considering I have such a generic name and I've changed it so many times. Yeah, and he had, and he has such an unfortunate name, and he's never changed and he's it. never changed it. Never changed it. <laughs> All right, so so how did the Greg Wilson come about? This was from Bart. 
Bart's right. Uh, this is from Bart. Bart was he was very into the internet uh, very early on. He recognized its power and its reach, and he was like, "Listen, you have to you get online." I, I resisted for 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 a while, for like over a year or so, and he was like, "No, you, let me at least build you a website. Let me get you a website." And I was like, "Fine, let's at least get a website." Okay. Now keep in mind at this point, there's no Google. There's no, uh, you know, things. it's things like AltaVista and AOL, wow. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you're getting discs in the mail for 500 free hours. Like it's, wow. I'm telling you, this is the birth pangs of the internet. So we didn't really, no one knew how it worked, you know? I mean, yeah. think about it. Even the people like you thought you needed an account with AOL to go on the internet. I thought AOL you know, you thought was the internet. <laughs> right. You thought you had to pay to see the internet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you didn't understand that these were just freestanding sites and you just needed a search engine. Yeah. Wow. You know? True. Because there were no independent search engines. There was AOL and you just searched AOL. Like there was, you know, and then came Alta Vista and Excite and all. The, but the, so it was building. So all of this was a mystery to people. Yeah. Myself included. To me, I was just like, I've always been a very late adopter on technology because I always want to see if it's going to stick. Right. You know, because there's think, a lot of technology that comes around and it doesn't stick and you waste all this time and energy. It's like, I'm not interested. I think at this point, the internet's probably going to stick. Yeah. Now at this point, yes, I think we're, I think we're stuck. With <laughs> we're that. safe. We're safe. Yeah. I don't know if we're safe, but we're definitely stuck with it. <laughs> um, so he so, convinced you to do. So Bart Baggett. Yeah. He's like, let me build you a website. And we go online. He goes, first, we have to buy you a domain name. Now, also keep in mind, at this point, domain names are like $120, $150. Wow. They're not cheap. And uh, and I'm, you know, a broke, young, 22-year-old comedian, 23, I don't know, young 20s. And he goes, uh, I think Bart may have even paid for it. And it, but, So we're searching names, and gregwilson.com was taken. Gregwilson.net was taken. Greg-Wilson.com was taken. Like, wow. all the Greg Wilson shit was taken already. Right. Because it's such a common name. And so we tried the Greg Wilson, and the Greg Wilson was available. And then came the question, how is anyone ever going to find the gregwilson.com? And so he was like, well, you could just use that as your stage name. You could just go as the Greg Wilson. And then people would search for the Greg That was really smart. Actually, This is literally, yeah. this is literally how we thought that because there were no search engines. So we, the idea was if you, if, if I didn't go by the Greg Wilson, they would never know to search for the Greg That was the idea. That's actually very and, smart because that's true. You know, you see a comic and then you look for them and you want to find their website. And sometimes it's the spelling of the name or you, you know, so that was really smart. Right. So that was the idea If they search for the Greg Wilson. There's only going to be one of those. So that was the idea. Now I immediately realized that this ruffled feathers. <laughs> well, it was funny. I would try to put it on the schedule as Greg Wilson. He would go, no, no, no. It's, the Greg Wilson. And so I thought, well, who is this? And you know, the name Greg Wilson um, conjured an image in my head of like some just pompous sort of jerky white guy. That's what I figured. That's right. what I figured okay. in my head. And then I saw you perform and I was just, just blown away because you're just so funny. Like you, I've seen oh, you on, you, no, you really are. And I'm not just saying, and I, you know me, I just don't say that about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, if you're on my podcast and I don't say you are so funny, uh, yeah, uh yeah. but no, you really are. And I've seen you, uh, you know, obviously, you know, big shows at the laugh factory, not that it's easier, but you know, everybody has pretty much a good set as a great crowd, but I've seen you at nights at the haha -ha when it was like, Oh my God, I was hosting and just bringing up one comic after another and watching them eat a dick and and then all of a sudden you got up there and just killed it, just crushed. <laughs> so you really have a great ability um, to uh, to get the audience engaged. Has that always been? Thank you. I really, uh, yes, that's always kind of been, and it's from my improv background because, you know, I started, you know, I tried stand up like when I first got out of the house and went to college, I was like 18 years old and I tried stand up like, like a couple times, like three times. But then I discovered troop improv. The 90s were all about the troop improv, but that involves engaging the audience. Yeah. And so I became very used to talking directly to people in the crowd. And and so uh, when I went into stand-up, it seemed odd to me that people were just getting up there and doing their rehearsed speeches. I was like, don't you want to talk to these people? Like, don't you you need to connect with them? You know? 
And so I always did that. I always was able to connect with them, and you know, in a very sincere way, to where they realized, oh, this isn't his speech. These aren't, <laughs> yeah. His, you know, this is like, jokes. He's fucking talking to me. Yeah, this is like some weird, awkward TED talk where I just have to sit here and watch till the right. end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this guy's fucking l- looking at me and asking me a question. And you know? I, I think that's a, I, th- I don't know. To me, I feel the same way you do. And I was always the, I think because I, I started in stand up way after I had performed as a singer. And so you yeah. have to talk to the audience, you know? So yeah, you have to engage the crowd. Yeah. Once you get them, you've got them, you know, that's how, that's what really, I Really, exactly. Yeah. Once you've got them engaged, then you can t- take them into your material and do all these other things successfully, you know? But if they're disengaged and it's really the job of the host mm-hmm. to engage the crowd. It's his job to get, because that's how you warm them up. Yeah. You engage them. And the worst hosts are always the ones that just get up there and do their acts and then end it with, that's my time. All right. <laughs> you guys ready for more comic? It's like, oh my God. Right. No. Okay. Yeah. First of all, that's not your time because you're going to come back six more times. So yeah. yeah. We're going to have to see that you. your time. We're going to see you know? over and over and over again. And that's why I think, I think hosting is one of the, I don't want to say it's one of the hardest jobs, but it's a, it's a difficult job because you have to know, and I learned this because I spent a lot of time hosting early on when I started doing stand-up. You really have to know when to be very short and brief and just bring up the yes. next guy because the energy's yes. up. And when the the guy before just either either did so much comedy and they need a break, you know, they laugh so much they need a break and you right. kind of temper it. Right. Or, you got to vamp for a little yeah. while and let him breathe. This is let all very breathe. smart. You're exactly right. Yeah. And then the next, the other thing is that you also have to know when they, um, when they're, you know, the last guy didn't do well and you got to bring that energy back up. You know, it was just talk about, you got to go out there with the paddles and just doof. Totally. Oh my God. You and I, as I say, the, I actually teach a hosting workshop and I teach it because it is a different job than anybody else's job on the show. Right. You know, there, it, and a lot of it is exactly what you're saying. And the natural tendency of a comedian is the exact opposite of what's required of being a good host, which you just touched on. Which is, you know, when the show's hot, they don't really need you. Maybe they need you to vamp for a few seconds to let them breathe, mm-hmm. catch your breath, and you move it right on. But a lot of comics, when they're not, they think, oh, the show's hot. Now they want to do time. And then when uh, somebody bombs, they don't want nothing to do with that bomb. They just get up and move it right on to the next guy. Yeah. Like, the next guy let him fucking deal with it. It's like, no. <laughs> it's oh, very selfish. No, no, it's, it's your job. Yeah. It is. And then yeah. it, and comics are very selfish. Yeah. So you have to explain this to them. That it's, it's actually the reverse of your natural tendency as a comedian when you're the host. You have a different job. But, you know, I think it's such a great way to start out because it was literally my first year in stand-up that I did a lot of hosting. I had my own show at yeah. the improv. And, and and you know what? And, and the same thing at the HaHa. I had my own show. And, and what was great about it was that I got to try out new bits in between comics, you know, so I could, I could build my set. I could get more material by just bringing up a joke and trying it out. And, you know, it was like, all right, if it didn't, if it didn't crush, and I, it was okay. I, yeah, and I and I preach it all the time that the best way to move from being a bringer to a booked comedian is to be a good host. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred. Being a good host, uh, being a good host. Every show needs a good host, and the reality is, the guys with the skill set to really do it are generally headlining. But if you can do it and engage the crowd and warm them up, you know, and know how to do the transitions correctly, then that's when you become valuable to the club and to bookers. Yeah. You know, I remember Ruben Paul saying to me one night that, you know, I think he was saying in Chicago, you know, the hosting spot usually doesn't go to the beginners. Right. It would be the star of the show. Yeah. And so he was like, it's so different out here, you know, because, and it's such an important job to just give to somebody. Oh yeah. You host. I mean, I see some people hosting and I'm like, Oh my God, it just, I I can't even watch it. I can't even watch it. I'm like, it's so bad. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's the thing. It is its own dynamic. It is its own job. It has different responsibilities, a different flow to it, everything, you know, I mean, cause you're also the eyes and ears of management when you're the host. Yeah. You know, when you're the host and something's happening, the management's going to come to you. What the fuck is happening? Cause they know you're the only person watching the whole show. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's how I used to feel on those nights when Jamie used to have me sit there and, and run the light and he would come and be like, what happened? I'm like, ah, see what I'm saying? You're the eyes and ears of management too. So there's so many of these little components to it 
that people don't realize, but if you know them and get good at them, you can go, it makes it much easier to transition out of being an amateur bringer to a booked professional. 100%. Now, where are you from? I don't even, are you from back east? I was actually, I was actually born in San Jose, California, but I was raised in, oh. in Dallas, Texas. Dallas is really where I kind of grew up. Oh, that's why we're that's Cowboy right. fans. I that's always, right. Yeah, right around football season, I know my Cowboy fans, it's you, Brett Ernst. Brett Ernst, I, I know, which is a, that's yeah. an unusual call. I never would have thought Brett Ernst was going to, Renee Garcia is a huge Cowboys fan. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you're right, and there's a collection of us, there's a very unusual group of people. Yeah, it is funny. And Brett and I are kind of the same in that, like, why would we be Cowboys fans? But see, I grew up in Jersey and my dad, they're all Giants fans and they would take us to Giants games. And I would sit in the cold and watch us lose to this team with the helmets and the stars and the color. Right. Like, right I know. I'm it's gonna, intoxicating. I'm going to go there. OK, so you were in Dallas. Yeah. And then at what point did you get in? Did you get into acting in Dallas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I was on, I was on Walker, Texas Ranger. Wow. Like if you, yeah, I think I was like 19 or something and they cast me as a college campus drug dealer because I have this really long, beautiful, flowing black hair Mm -hmm. that the Lord took away from me. Um, (laughs) Give it and then he take it. Boy, give it and then take it. I had one attractive feature. It's like, what a jerk. So, (laughs) um, but the, uh, yeah, but no, but I, so I, I, yeah, I worked in, in Walker, Texas Ranger. That was my first like network TV job, you know, and I did a lot of local commercials and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, yeah, I started uh, acting and comedy there in Dallas, you know, and I was in Dallas. And where does this come from? Is this your family? You come from Yeah, yeah. My dad, uh, before he became a minister, he was a very good actor, you know. And Wait, you're a minister's son? Yeah, both okay. my parents are ministers or were wow. my, my father's past. This explains um, a lot. My mother's still... <laughs> Yeah. And and can I be honest with you? I really don't normally give up that piece of information because that's exactly how people react. They act like I have given them the (laughs) final center piece to the puzzle. You know, like the picture was there, but they're like, what's missing? What happened? And then I say, my parents are ministers like, and there it is. The passage opens, the dates so, open, you know, the bars go up, the whole thing. And like, was like, we fucking found it, it the missing piece. Like, and that's why I really don't say, because I don't feel that way personally, but everyone acts that way. Everyone reacts like, ah, uh-huh, that, you know. So. Well, there's got to be something that makes, that make. I, I always feel there's got to be something that makes a comic, you know, sometimes. Oh, you're exactly right. You're like, family, you're like, where's the abuse? Something. Right. <laughs> I know. Wait, and I used to say that on yeah, morning but, radio um, shows when I'd go on morning radio shows when you're on the road and they're like, oh, come on in and do the morning radio spot. So I'd go in and so many times we ask, so what makes a good comedian? I, my answer was always the same. Abuse. You know, <laughs> you have, there's something, something. that I, some exactly, level of neglect, something yeah. that created this desire to be, in, you know, to stand in front of people and everybody look at you while you talk. It's exactly the reverse of do the way rem- most people are wired. Do you remember that moment? Like, do you remember the first moment that like you knew, I I guess because your family was, was involved in it. Like, but did you have that moment where you were like, okay, this is definitely the direction I'm going to go because you're already acting at 19. So it had to be way younger than that. Without question. When we first moved to Texas, we moved in the, when I was in the fourth grade, we'd bounced around the Bay area, you know, my earliest childhood in the fourth grade, we moved to Texas to the Dallas area. We moved to a town called Greenville, Texas, about uh, about an hour outside, northeast of Dallas. And it was in Blackland County, which at the time had a sign that said, Welcome to Blackland County, the blackest land with the whitest people. Get out of here. No fucking joke. This is how deeply entrenched in racism this town was. And this is where we moved. And so we go there. And first day of class, the teacher says, I want everybody to stand up and, and say, say your name and something about yourself. So everyone's, you know, hey, my name's, you know, my name's Davey and I, you know, like to ride my bike. You know, my, the whole class goes around. They say all their things and everything. And then I stand up and I said, uh, my name's Greg and I like to tell jokes, but I hate getting slapped for them afterwards. <laughs> That's a great joke. Oh my, the room exploded. It was, yeah. It was my first left turn. Wow. <laughs> and first left turn, yeah. It was my first left turn punchline. And I was like, I couldn't believe the reaction. I was like, oh shit, there's power in comedy. Yeah. 
and, it's, and, and that it's was a it. Gift. I think it's a gift. And, and it's, you know, with everything that's going on in the world today, like we just, we need to laugh. We need it so bad. So Boy, like, so much. Oh my oh. God. We have never needed comic relief more, but this brings up a very interesting point in that I feel like as much as we need to laugh, people hate talking about that the politics and all this. And I know every comic wants to be important and be the one to talk about it and fucking bring it down. But people are so overdosed with it that the relief they need is to not talk about anything but right. that. Right. And it's weird watching it because I understand the need of us comedians to want to be the ones to say, no, we need to do this and be that and the world can be this. But when you see a comic start to talk about it, you see the audience just like, like they just, please don't, please, I don't want to have this discussion right now. Like, they need relief so bad. I've never seen them in need of comic relief more than right now. It's very true. I think what it is is that if you go on Facebook, there's so much. I mean, you see people saying, I had to defriend or unfriend people today because of what they said. Yeah. So I think when you bring it up in a comedy club, there's instantly, it's like when, when I do any sort of humor about black people, instantly the crowd's like, wait, are there black people here? Can we laugh? Is it okay? Sure. And I think it's sure, the same absolutely. thing politically. It's like, uh, I don't know how many people support Trump here, how many people are anti-Trump. I don't know if I'm in my crowd of people. But I think you're right. And I've always felt like I don't I don't do any political humor only because I don't know enough about it. You know, I'll, I'll make little like side jokes. But to really get into a conversation, I don't know enough to to go down that road. But I think you're right. What's what what the root of it is. The most important thing is that we just need to laugh. It doesn't have to be about that. That can be why we need to laugh. But it doesn't have to be based on your jokes don't have to be based in that. Yeah. And then, you know, this, it's the job, you know, that's what we do. And I think we, we lose sight of that sometimes because we get caught up in doing stand-up self-importance and we have to remember the audience's need for relief, you know, yeah. by the same token, you know, I mean, there's a lot of jokes that I don't do anymore because they were so aggressive and so, you know, that I, you know, I mean, at the time they were, you know, it was shock comedy. It was meant to be very edgy. It was meant to be, you know, um, it was meant to, to, to make you almost feel bad about yourself for laughing. Right. <laughs> and right. I don't, I, it really was. I mean, I kind of always was kind of going for this crazy mind fuck, you know, of, I can't believe I'm laughing at this, you know? So you and made I don't adjustments. Want to laugh. And well, I just don't do that material anymore. Cause I kind of go out of it. I, I, the world changed. I changed sure. things change. Sure. You know, my name changed. So, you know, and, and and that's just the way things are. And I feel like that material was very much the Greg Wilson. And I feel like now I'm very much doing Greg Romero Wilson. You know, so when did that when did you change from the Greg Wilson to Greg Romero Wilson? What was this that happened decision? like this happened like two years ago. And I guess okay. it came out of several things. One, I felt I, I was just the Greg Wilson. I felt like was this young man, this brash young man who was just kicking in doors, knocking over shit, just, you know. And, and I felt like that just wasn't who I was anymore. You know, I felt like I was very much settling into, into who I really am and who I really am. Didn't see that's the thing that's really never been a part of my career, but I mean, I'm a Mexican American. I mean, the name Wilson is by adoption. You know, my father was adopted by his stepfather and that made us Wilsons. But his birth name was, his birth name was Calleros and my mother's maiden name is Romero. And so I felt like I was not being honest about who I really was. I felt like I wasn't being authentic to who I am. Yeah. And so I I decided, you know what? And and I gotta, I'll tell you a story. If you want to hear this, I'll tell you the story. Of course. Two, two things happened. Oh my God. I hope I don't cry. Oh, two things happened. (laughs) It'll be my Oprah moment. I'm telling you two things happened in one trip. Both my grandfather Romero, Tranquilino Romero, who served during World War II, and my father, who served during Vietnam, but not in Vietnam. That's an important distinction. I always say my father served during Vietnam because he did. But my father was very, very lucky. And because he was a musician, (laughs) right before he was supposed to board the transport to Vietnam, as the story's been told, Apparently a Jeep rolls up and is like, I have three names. When I say your name, step forward, so-and-so, so-and-so, and and Private Wilson Charles E. And he steps forward. He goes, you men have been reassigned. Wow. Get in the Jeep. And he gets in the Jeep and they take him to this, you know, where they're going to go. And they go, we found out you're a drum major. (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> We're going to send you to Germany to help run the army band. Oh. So while he did serve during Vietnam, he was actually in Germany. Wow. It was wow. all very strange. So, but, you know, at that point, my father was already becoming a minister and, you know, they called him, the, you know, they called him preacher and stuff like that. And so anyway, so I went on this one day, I'm back in El Paso. I'm performing at the El Paso comic strip. And I, I went to Fort Bliss to see my dad and to see my grandfather. Whew, it's tough to talk about. I go to see my dad. And I'd always had this idea, this bring this, you're going to recognize what I'm talking about. I always had this idea. My dad was a drummer as well. My dad was an actor. He was an incredible drummer and he was a minister. And he always played the drums. He never stopped. He always played them in church. Whenever they were doing the choir, you know, the singing and everything, he was playing the drums. And I always had this idea. It inspired this idea of putting a symbol in my act, this crash symbol or a splash symbol, as drummers call it. And, but I never really went through with it because it seems so hacky and so ridiculous. And so my dad, I went to see my dad. And we're talking, you know, how you have this honest conversation with, with those that have deceased already. Like you can finally really unload. Yeah. Yes. So I'm really unloading. And I said, and he was like, he was like, Hey, you know, that idea you had about, he's like, you know what? I'm gone now. <laughs> if you want to put me in the act, you, put, you know, maybe give it a shot. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Let's, let's fucking try it, Pops. And I went home. And now before I go home, I then go down to see my grandfather. And there he is, Tranquilino Romero. And I'm like, you know, and I, again, I'm unloading. Right. And I'm like, why didn't you tell us more? Because at the end, he finally began to share some of his stories about being on the ship and it getting hit by the kamikaze and he, you know, and his, his best friend was the other gunner that got hit and died immediately and him getting burned over like 80%. Like we didn't know any of this. He wouldn't talk about it, but he finally started telling my sister and she's the one that started telling us. So I'm telling him like, why didn't you tell us all this? Why weren't we closer? Why couldn't you, you know? So we go through all this and he's like, why won't you take my name? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I don't know. He goes, let me help you. Be who you really are. Hero Romero. Be proud. And I was like, I'm, you're right. I'm so sorry. You're right. It's like I've been hiding. You know, like I tell people I'm Mexican and they don't believe it. They're like, what? You, you Greg Wilson? And I have to explain. You know, and he was like, use my name. Take my name. Be a Romero and I will help you. Wow. And I was like, okay. And I went home. And I, I, and the idea in my mind was always to go buy a symbol. And I'd even gone to music stores and like tapped on all these symbols and like none of them seemed right and all yeah, this. I, yeah. I couldn't really find it. I swear to Jesus, all oh, this is a thousand percent true. And I go home and I see my dad's drum kit still there in the church. And I thought, and I looked right at the symbol and I was like, that's the symbol. Ugh. And I, I asked my family if I could take it. And of course they were like, yeah, we, we don't, no one else plays the drums anymore. And I take the symbol off of his drum kit and I put it in my suitcase and that's how he became part of the act. Oh, and that's the symbol that I saw you with at the LA comedy club. That's exactly right. You know, it's, oh my God, what a beautiful story. It was hard for me to <laughs> not cry as well. <laughs> I, 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 so touching. And so like, but what, What's interesting is that, you know, I haven't seen you perform in a couple of years. Like I saw you at a, a wedding uh, last year, but I haven't seen you perform. And when I heard the Greg Romero Wilson and, and you had the symbol up there, I felt like, wow, you just really, it's kind of all come together for you. Like, it's just, it's a Thank complete you. thing now. I felt it and I didn't, of course, I didn't know anything about the symbol. I didn't know the story or anything. I just thought it was, you know, something you were doing that was kind of fun up there, but there was just something that listen, you were always good. You were always great comic, very funny, but there was just something that just what you said, it was very authentic. I felt like you were, you were you, you were just really, really you it was amazing. Well, and, and can I tell you, that's what happened when I brought the symbol out on stage, because I remember thinking to myself, like all this time, it's like, I've been trying to be more them. You know, like I've been trying to tone it down mm -hmm. and not be so loud and not be so aggressive and try to be more talky and more personal and all the stuff that I thought they wanted. Mm -hmm. 
And then one day I was like, why am I trying to be quieter? I want to be louder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to be you. And I think that's that true right. self that's in us. Yeah. And it is hard because I, like you, moved here from, or I moved to LA from New Jersey and I just wanted to be and do whatever they wanted me to be and do so I could be in the club. And I mean, I had, I had changed my name to Andrea Lauren. I had dropped the Natoli and right. I was wearing, I was wearing blue contacts cause I thought I looked too ethnic, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. I mean, these are the this things like, that, you know, that we we're just trying to play the game and you know, we don't, you know, it's like you're trying to, I don't know. I mean, I was definitely trying to create my own image, but the, like the Greg Wilson was very much in contrast with what was selling in LA. And so, I slowly began to try and become more like them, but still be the Greg Wilson. And then one day I was like, no, no, no. I just, I got to break out. I got to, I want to make noise. I got to be loud. That's who I am. And yeah. then the symbol allowed me to, I don't know. It just gave me this, I don't know. It's this extra dimension. And to, to that point though, I will say this. I don't know that the symbol stays forever. Right. You know, it isn't, it is, I don't ever want to feel like I'm symbol dependent, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. I want to, I want to know that I, and I worked for so long without it. And some nights I don't bring it on stage. Sometimes I feel like it's going to, and like with hosting, it's too aggressive off the top a lot of times for hosting. So I don't use it when I host, you know, although I do when I do my down and dirty show, but other than that one, uh, you know, most of the time when I host, I don't bring the symbol because it's too aggressive right off the top, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know? Um, so it doesn't fit every situation. And so I don't feel like it will, I don't know if it'll always be with me. Maybe it will. Cause I gotta be honest when I really get rolling and the crowd is into it and I'm slamming that symbol, I feel like something's happening, man. Oh, I felt it for sure. And, and maybe you see, maybe you continue to bring it on stage, but not use it. People are like, what's with the symbol? Why is he not? Yeah. <laughs> just, has, <laughs> just has it next to him, but such a, totally. Such and that's like some shows I do have it there and just don't use it very much. You <laughs> like, know, like the comics and have a guitar and it's just like, are you going to play that or just have it hang around your neck? Well, and that's the other thing, like other comics who really like the symbol. There's a lot of comics that like it and there's a few that really hate it. Mm. And, uh, and I respect the opinion of, everybody on uh, with people on both sides i'm like really you know like, like i really don't but then there's a lot of people that are really respect they're like i fucking love it i think it's very you and so but they were like watch now there's going to be multiple symbol comics like oh, who's yeah. going to be the <laughs> next symbol comic you know yep, because yep. it's like there's more than one guitar comic and that's going to be the excuse like there's more than one guy that plays the, the guitar why can't I do the symbol too? Like that will be the reason. 100%. You know? 100%. But it's a good thing we did this podcast because I'll be like, look at the date of this podcast. Okay. You didn't come up with the symbol thing. Okay. He was doing it way before you. <laughs> and that is the other thing that I really enjoy about it is that in stand up, in comedy in general, sometimes it really feels like everything has been done. And as someone who's really spent a lot of time researching and, and, and dissecting and being a part of stand-up and watching, you know, countless comedians at every level. Um, I couldn't, in my mind, place anyone who used just a symbol. I, I couldn't either. And no, I've never seen I, it, I don't think. And that's an incredibly, and I know we all say, I don't think, because we feel like it has to be out there somewhere. Yeah. And maybe it is. Maybe there was somebody that did try it, that did do it, that I just can't come to mind, but to my not, you know, generally speaking, and I always challenge people, like, think of them, who's done it? And no one can ever think of anybody. And again, someone will be like, no, it's this guy, Arnold, somebody out of Cleveland. He worked there from 67 to 88. And then we'll be like, okay, so there you go. There's the guy that started. I never saw him, but I'll be accused of stealing it. Um, but I think what's so, what's so important is, is your reason for doing anything, you know? And I think your reasoning behind it you know, it's not like one day you just feel like, Hey, you know, what make me funnier. You know, it'd be kind of a cool little shtick to have. This came from a, a real genuine thing. And I think that's why it's working. I think if someone was just like, Hey, I'm going to bring a symbol on stage tonight and see if that works. I don't think it would have the same impact, but because of where it comes from for you and the, the connection you have, and you always say like your dad's on stage with you. Yeah. I think that's why it just seems super genuine. I mean, your personality, I think you can pull off a symbol. Not everybody could pull off a symbol. Thank you. And I think you're right about that. I think I had that kind of bombastic yeah. thing already that a symbol kind of goes with. It's like Chuck Barris from the gong show kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you got to know, know, what know I mean? who you are. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. and, and so that's kind of like, it kind of just fit my loudness, you know, like I love slamming it. I, it, you know, it, it really, it, it, it makes me crazy. It agitates me in a good way. You know, like it makes, it makes me kind of more into it. 
and the crowd, I think, really responds to it. I mean, I saw it in, in Vegas and uh, and I saw the crowd really respond to it. And it's sometimes just, you know, when you just turn around and hit it, they start laughing. It's like its own it's its own punchline. You know? <laughs> it does. It yeah. becomes its own thing. And people compare it sometimes the way that Chappelle would kind of smack his mic along his leg, kind of creating yes. like a drum beat, like yes. a bump, like a bunk, mm-hmm. bunk. And, and I could see that. I could see, yeah, I am kind of using it in that same way, but it is a very different energy. It is more than just a thump. It is, it is noise, you know? For sure. So let's get back to the acting. Cause I'm really fascinated with the, your journey. Okay. So, so you were on Walker, Texas Ranger in, in Texas. Yeah. And then at what point do you decide, okay, I want to move to, did you move to LA to pursue that? No, I went to okay. New York first to do comedy. Mm. And, and and in many ways, it's funny because I'll tell you, I got to New York and the comedy, I, I did very well with the comedy in New York. And, and I, you know, I managed to get some agents and I managed to get, you know, management, all these things. And so, um, you know, so I did pretty well. I was in some very big commercials. Like I didn't, this is a funny story. I landed this Heineken campaign that shot in Ireland that was exclusively for the Irish market. Okay. It was a six commercial campaign complete with all these big billboards and everything. So while no one here saw it, all my comedy friends that went to the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, they said my I they go there and I'm on all these billboards. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> they get off the plane in Ireland and then there's Greg and all these like, you know, and all these billboards. So um, yeah, so it was just, it was just, you know, so I got all these good jobs. I was on Law and Order. Okay. I, I did uh, what, and then of course I did all the VH1 stuff, and that's you know, that was my closest rush with fame was the VH1. And stuff. was that all in New York? That was all in New York. Okay. And after a while, I did. After a while, I had done Ugly Betty. I done VH1. I done MTV. I done Law and Order. And there really wasn't much other television work. I did Third Watch. Like every show that was in New York, I did. A, I did a, a part on. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, okay, well, I, I've done all the TV I can do here. That and the Heineken campaign sent me, a, I, I got one big check from them for like, for like $27,000. And I realized that that was my chance to get out of New York. And, and so I took that, that money and moved to, to Los Angeles. Did you like living in New York? Cause I know some people. I, I did, but I was, kill, I was killing it. myself. I was killing myself. It was too much. It was too much. Like the decision to move to LA was a decision of survival. Cause the initial idea was, Oh, I got all this money. I'm going to get my own apartment. I'm going to buy a bunch of Coke. I'm going to fucking have people over. And I was like, or I could go to California and just dry up, you know? Interesting. That, so I, uh, interesting LA. that LA is the, like the rehab place <laughs> place to like come and mellow out a little bit. So versus New York. Yeah. New York was just, it was too rollicking. I was doing too much. I was okay. connected to too much. It was too much. I got, I got myself into deep. Okay. So you left, you left New York, you moved to LA and what, when was that? What year is that? Uh, that was 2006. Oh, okay. 2006. Yeah. So right around the time we met, you had just moved there from I New York. I just moved from New York. And oh, I had been, okay. remember, that was when Jamie Masada had the Laugh Factory in New York. And I was his, like, main headliner there. Like, he just came in, watched a bunch of comments, like, Greg, you're, you close all the shows, <laughs> you know? And so I wound up headlining those shows, you know, for like 40 weeks in a row. So, I mean, it was because Jamie just rubber stamped the same lineup every week. So it just kept going. Well, he did say that to me, you know, because it was difficult for anybody to follow you. So when we would book you on shows, it was always that you had to, you had to close the show because it was, I was very, always the closer. Yeah. It was very, it was a, you're a very difficult act to follow. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a positive thing. That is. Thank you. Yeah. That's something I take that uh, as a great compliment. Yeah. I, I learned, I learned a lot about where, where people go, you know? So when, so when I moved into comedy myself and, and got my own show, I think that's why uh, my friends with benefits show was so successful because I knew exactly how to build that lineup. I knew, I knew all the comics really well, you know, and you do have yeah. to know where to put, where to put people because that can, you that really can do break the show, you know, and but let me tell you something. Being a closer is its own curse. I call it the curse of the closer because everybody wants you to go last because you can, but consequently you have to watch all these other guys get the best parts of the show. You know, that third position, that second position, those are the sweet spots. Yeah. You know, they're getting the better chunk of the show. Why? Because they don't crush as hard as I do. So they get a better <laughs> slice of the show. Yeah. You're getting punished for being so good. I'm getting punished for being good at my job. Yeah. And so it's the curse of the closer. 
And I've seen a lot of people graduate to closer and then they're like, this fucking sucks. I'm like, welcome to the curse of the closer. (laughs) Yeah. You're better off where you were, buddy. You were, you were better off second, third position where you could just eat up the fine slice of the pie, but nope, you got big credits now. Welcome to being a closer. And so when you moved from, uh, from New York to LA, so instantly you just started working at the laugh factory. You didn't have to jump through any hoops there. Absolutely. That's and I didn't realize, and that's the thing. And I wish I had known better how lucky I was because I really took it all for granted because I didn't realize how hard it was to get in there. I just showed up and started getting spots, closing shows Saturday nights, you know, like I just, yeah. it you know, very, you put my name on the marquee, difficult. you know, like, yeah. and I didn't realize how many people wanted, I, I just didn't realize how many steps I'd skipped. You know? it, was very, it was a very difficult time because Jamie was really concerned about putting what guys he was going to put up on, you know, on the hot shows on the Friday and Saturday night shows. And when I got there, yeah, he was missing a lot of people that were really strong that were that I was seeing at the comedy store at the Ha Ha and yeah, you know, yeah. the improv. And I was like, Jamie, why are these guys not, you know, performing here? And and it was just such a barrier. And um. And, uh, I just started to break it down. I'm like, fuck it, Jamie, you got to put this guy up. You got to put that guy up. You have to, I mean, these guys are, you know, really, really strong. And so, um, I think that's why, you know, we're all still friends today because I did go to bat for a lot of people and I'm like, funny is funny. I don't care. You know, (laughs) that's the most important thing. It's not to me, it's not a political thing. It's a, it's a funny thing. If you're funny and yeah, exactly. And that's what it should be about. Yeah. But LA it's less about that in LA than anywhere else I've ever been. Yeah. You know, everywhere else, especially in New York. I mean, yeah, of course it's positive, blah, blah, but at the end of the day, funny one. But here, funny means nothing. <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? You know, it, and, it really and, is. And then it's all, you know, who's who's got what acting credit. And with all due respect, like acting and comedy are not the same. I thing. know. It's like, exactly. It's like who's on a TV show right now? Suddenly, you're the hot comic because you're on a TV show. But it's like, and because of that, people tend to think that the best comics get TV work, and that isn't always the case. Well, a lot of comics can't act. That's another thing. When I was working at the Laugh Factory, I came from a, you know, I'd worked at CAA. And so I came from like a talent management background. And so Jamie had me taking the management company and starting to actually like get people auditions and send them out. And, and it's very interesting to me that like, cause I'm like you, you know, I've been able to do both things and do them pretty well. Right. But, But that, that's not the case for everybody. You can see a comic who's just amazing on stage and just cannot cannot act and vice versa actors who are incredible who just it doesn't translate and even great comedic actors who don't necessarily translate to stand up so what do you think that is and how how do you think you've made it happen on both uh in both careers for yourself i mean for me it's just all i mean i hate to admit it but it's really all just about my dad my dad was a great actor he was incredibly charismatic he was super funny he was just this powerhouse of talent um, so charismatic and, and he took all that and he directed it into a ministry. Um, so he was a very charismatic minister. And it's so funny because when I first started doing stand-up, you know, I've always loved dirty jokes. I've always been a dirty comic. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm far less dirty than I used to be, but I can be incredibly dirty when I want to. And like in Vegas, I do an incredibly dirty closer that I really don't break out other places, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, so but it all came from my dad. And so because of that, like when I first started watching myself do stand-up, it looked like my dad preaching, only saying really horrible, nasty things. <laughs> so while I love performing it, I didn't really like watching it. Um, but it all, it really genuinely, it all, it all came from the old man. He was an incredibly, incredibly talented man. And so it was all came from his charisma. And people say it when people, my family says it, when they watch me do stand-up, the faces I make, those, my, those are my dad's faces. Those are faces he would make. Like I learned all of those crazy things from him. Like he was just that guy, you know? And, and so, but instead, but he wanted to do the ministry and I, I didn't want to do the ministry. I wanted to perform on stage. I wanted to be an actor and a comedian. How did he feel about that? You know, uh, initially they hated it. They didn't, they disagreed with it entirely and thought that I was completely denying my heritage, et cetera, and say all those words. And I just didn't talk to him for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, and this is the truth. That was always a ravine 
between me and my father. Now, at the end of his life, he came to accept it. And I'll never forget, I had this horrible insomnia because I knew he was going to die. His body was failing. I knew he was going to die. And I just had this desire to do something great before he died. Even though I'm sure him, I'd already done so many great things. But um, I went home to, to, to perform at the club and, and, to, see, and to see him. And I'd, I'd had insomnia, wicked insomnia at that point for about, uh, uh, about eight weeks, probably about two months, maybe going on three months I, of not being able to sleep. And it was, I didn't realize it was because of, of this fear of my father dying and us not having, you know, come back together, I guess. And so, um, when I saw him, I, I was talking about how I was going to teach a workshop there at the El Paso comic strip. And he goes, Oh, I want to come to see your workshop. I was like, you don't want to see it. It's me. You just break it out, stand up at formulas, punchline dynamics, structure, et cetera. And he goes, no, I do. He goes, wow, you get to teach it and perform it. How lucky to get what you do, what you love, get to do what you love for a living. How wonderful. Aww. And when he said those words, I, it, it, it's so strange to be actually, to, to be able to feel healing mm. come in. Like like a rain on on starving dead plants mm. that suddenly like oh, like instantaneous renewal. Wow! How, how and, beautiful that you got that. So many people don't. Oh, you know, I know. And that was the thing. It. Like that night, I slept and I was like, "Oh my god!" It was all about my dad. And they and when I would tell others, you know, confide in others that I was struggling with insomnia, and I know they had, they'd be like, "Well, what's wrong? What's the problem?" They're like, "I don't know. I don't know." And they're like, "Well, you got to figure out what's wrong. Something's bothering you. You have to find out what it is." You know. And that, then I realized and that's good advice from comics because usually they're like, "Dude, here's an Ambien. Just take that with a bottle." Right. We just try. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here, just knock yourself out. You Go know? to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I was doing, you know, taking sleep and like mix up the various things, the, the natural ones with the over the counter ones with the, the prescription ones are way too strong. I, I stopped fucking with those immediately because those are addictive as fuck. Fuck those. So, um, so I'll just do a rotation of the over the counter stuff with the herbal stuff. But it really is and something, it's something unsettling inside you. There's it is. Something is something bothering is you. Off, your mind, yeah. your body, it's telling you there's something wrong that you have to deal with now. And a lot of times it's some kind of body ailment. Mm -hmm. Your body's telling you you've got something and you need to go to get checked out, which that's what I was afraid it was, you know? But then I went to the doctor and he was like, no, you're fine. I'm like, what the, what the fuck is the problem? Why can't I sleep? You know? And they just prescribed me fucking sleeping pills. And so, um, and, but it was in that moment that I realized it was about my dad. It was about closure. It was about him accepting what I do, you know? And, yeah. and me being able to share it with him finally. And towards the end, you know, he'd been starting to come to the shows and he'd be laughing and he'd love it. And he'd go, oh, the energy you put out there. It's like, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, no one knows how you do it. What are you talking about? Wow. So, so, and he, and they came to see the workshops there. And and then after that, my dad would like use the, the, the comedy terminology he learned in my <laughs> workshops. He picked up <laughs> like, some notes. Oh, Totally. Right. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. And it was just funny then he would try to converse with me in the language of stand up after that. And it was very, you know, exciting. But there was only, you know, a matter of months left after that. Ugh. You know, it's, it's, there was it's a very such, short amount of time. It's such a beautiful story and such a, a story of healing and also a story of inspiration because I think, like, I'm a parent, I have three kids. And I think, you know, we, we want this for them and we want that for them. But ultimately, I think the the bottom line is you just want to see your kids happy. And when you see them doing what they really love to do, there's just, there's no greater joy. And the fact that your dad was able to, I mean, it speaks a lot about who your dad is to be able to even humble himself and say, okay, it might not be the dream that I had for you, but it's your dream and I support it and I recognize it. And then, you know, to be in your corner about that. I mean, that's huge. A lot of people don't get that. Yeah. my And that's the thing is my father's ministry really changed as he got older. And I wish I'd been a part of it more and to understand it because, you know, the father that I grew up with was all fire and brimstone and judgment and hell. And you better get your life right, motherfucker. And, you know, <laughs> it was, it was very aggressive. The way I was aggressive in comedy, he was aggressive in his ministry. And, 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 and it really, it, it did hurt his ministry. It definitely held him back, I think for a long time, but much like I evolved into a gentler, sweeter version of comedy, you know, he did with his ministry. He, towards the the end he was very big on what he called the grace message which is 
you're okay. You're forgiven. Whatever you are is fine. God loves you. Like he would accept trans people. And, and like there was a, you know, a trans, uh, you know, man, trans woman that came to young, young person that was struggling with it. And he would address her as her and uses his, his, her, you know, his female name and, and let him be that. That's huge, Greg. You know, that's huge in that huge. world. Huge, and that, I mean, that and let me tell happen. you something. That hurt his ministry too. You know, then everyone else was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" He goes, "No, God loves you. Who you are, who He made." And this was revolutionary versus what he'd started with. Which when I grew up with, you know, God has this and don't do that, and blah, 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 you know, it's all rigid rules and and hellfire and punishment. And it became no grace. We had we were saved by grace. All has been forgiven. The ultimate sacrifice was made. We don't have to worry about that anymore. You just have to accept Christ, and you know, and the Lord loves you no matter what. You know, wow. And I mean, to that point, I actually tried to create jokes around that idea, you know, that never flew. <laughs> they never worked. But that, like the one was I would talk about how like in the entire Bible, the only thing written by the finger of God is the Ten Commandments. Everything else is written by man inspired by God. The only thing God came out of the clouds and wrote with his finger was the Ten Commandments. Right. Right. And the, I don't know about you, but I can't help noticing that none of them are thou shalt not be gay. <laughs> that's a really good point. I, I would not give up on that joke because that's but a very But he did tell message. us not to cheat on our wives. Twice. Word. Word. Twice. <laughs> yeah. Did not commit adultery and don't even think about it with that bitch next door. But if it's a guy, it's fine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And that that's always what, you know, and I, I've tried to go back to, you know, I grew up as a Catholic, went to Catholic school. And, um, you know, I just, I, I've always been somebody who is like in search of spirituality and connection and all that stuff. So I tried to go back to church for a little while and it was so strange. And then I got this email um, I don't know if it was from the Vatican or what. It was like some on some sort of Catholic email list that I got on by going back to church. And it was something that was so negative about gay people, about just how it's so wrong. And so this, and I'm like, wait, didn't Jesus come so that we could all stop this nonsense and just love everybody and accept everybody? Well, and, I mean, and that's baffling. the other thing. And that's the thing that I talk about, you know, when we when I do talk about religion in private with other people, et cetera, that's one thing I really talk about is it seems so clear to me I read the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. I read the whole thing, wow. cover to cover, every fucking word of it, including the book of Numbers, which is mm-hmm. literally just a list of names and numbers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I read every fucking one of them so that I could say for the rest of my life, I read every word of the Bible. But there's a very clear thing that happens in the Bible. First of all, to me, the Old Testament is just like a collection of fables and stories, it's basically advice. It's basically like if you were to ask your grandfather your advice, advice, he'd be like, let me tell you the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. and it's they're basically all stories that basically tell you, look, the worst has already happened. Everybody's gone through hell and whatever could happen to you is happened to somebody else. And you just have to have faith and believe that life will renew itself. That's basically what happens. Um, and then the New Testament is about love. Christ comes back and he says, I give you one law. Love one another. That's that's it. Yeah, 100%. You guys can't do 10. You clearly can't do 10. You're stealing from each other. You're killing each other. You're fucking each other's wives. You guys can't do 10 things. Just give me one. Let me give you one. Yeah. Love one another. Yeah. And then he leaves and his dumbass apostles start fucking it up immediately. They're like, let's rewrite that. Totally. They're like, yeah, love everyone, but not gays and not these right. guys and fuck the Phoenicians right. and blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, you they everybody, start, but not ju- you people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> judgment, 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 judgment. Yeah. Every letter they wrote was judgy, judgy, because, well, essentially they'd written to them to ask for a ruling on this subject. And then they would send them back their judgments, which is in contradiction to what Christ said, which was just love one another. So true. That should have been the answer to every question. Can we do this? I don't know. Just love one another. Just love one another. And it blows my mind too, because when Jesus was here, you know, he didn't hang out with priests. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. It's like, (laughs) and I say that all the time. The Republicans are the, the, the merchants in the synagogue. 
Mm-hmm. That's who they are. They're, yeah. they're the fucking people clouding themselves in the synagogue going, no, we're, we're, this is, we're in the synagogue. And he's like, you're fucking money changers. Get the fuck out of my dad's house. Yeah, and kicks everything over and threw a fit. Kicks everything over. They're like, what? This motherfucker. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. And to me, that's who the Republicans have evolved into. They cloud themselves. And not that I'm any great Democrat. I hate those cocksuckers too. But as a Christian, it offends me. And not that I'm a great Christian either. Just someone who was raised knowing Christianity offends me when they cloak themselves. It's like if I called myself a Christian comic and then went up there and did the material that I do. Yeah. I mean, it's even worse, I think, you know, because because you could call yourself a Christian comic because you are a Christian and you are a comic. And, you know, and I think that I I think that what you do is you make people laugh. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, I've taken a lot of slack for some of the because I do a lot of jokes about the Catholic Church and I do, you know, but it's like it's our own experience. And I think when you grow up in religion, there's going to be a piece of it somewhere in your comedy because there is a lot of blasphemy and craziness and hypocrisy. And that's the thing. Yeah. And people can think whatever they want and they want to cling to those few things. It's just that's just how I feel about it when I see it. I'm like, you guys you're the most anti-Christian people I can imagine, and yet you shroud yourself in in the concept of Christianity. You know, it's like yeah. it's like where's the love? Where's the long suffering? Okay, where's the peace, kindness, joy? Okay, where are those things? Where yeah, are the fruits? Say like you know, yeah, to say like oh yeah, we love everyone, but not well, not those people, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? not, not those, no, not, not the not. dark people, not the Mexican, not right. the illegal immigrants. Not that there's right. still people. God said love. Christ said yeah. love one another. Okay? And when you get to that place where you realize we're all connected. So yeah, you're, absolutely. that's what I believe. So like my hatred and jealousy and, and, and ill will towards you is, is at myself. It, it comes right back to me. I can't, I can't hate you and love me and love that person, but not that person. Now, listen, I could not like a lot of people and not choose to spend time with people, but at a base level, you do have to have an, uh, a certain, uh, just understanding and love. And, and, you know, people get, people are all doing the best they can. Everybody's doing the best they can. They are. Know? It's just, I no think that's something that, you know, that's the thing, like that's because why my comedy has become much more a comedy of inclusion much mm-hmm. more comedy of, hey, let's all get along. Hey, we're all the same. Look at us. We all do the same stupid shit. Huh? How about us? You know, that because that's what I'm trying to engender now because I don't want this divisiveness. You know, and ultimately, look, you want to be Republican, be Republican. You want to be Democrat. I don't believe in either of you. It doesn't matter to me. So, right. uh, you know, but we're all, we'd be, let's just get along because we're all, we're all the same. We're all the same. You know, let's love one another. So in many ways, my father's grace message has been translated <laughs> into this, you know, comedic, you know, journey of let's just get along, you know? Well, I, I think, I think in a way comics are the new ministers, you know, the way people, cause it's like people have such an aversion to church now, you know, it's like even churches, even like Christian oh my churches God, yes. have become like a, we're not really a church. It's more like a party. You can come yeah, like, dress as you out. want. It's cool, be cash. <laughs> well, yeah, because yeah. formal church turn, turn, started turning people off. You know I mean? I remember as a kid, as a kid, that was what I didn't like about church. We get two days off from school and one of them, we have to get up just as early and put on a suit (laughs) and go to a different school. And too long. And that used to drive me crazy. Oh my God. So long. We always went to like really, you know, charismatic churches. We'll just put it that way. And, um, (laughs) and that loved, you know, the four six hour service. Oh yeah, black churches all day long. You better just they're good. You're that's gonna, what we would do. Yeah. We were just like that. We yeah. would go and it would be all. You go in in the morning and you come out. Oh yeah, you're gonna have a meal. Like, oh, you're gonna I have. I just a- wanted to enjoy some. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There'd be the lunch. We'd have yeah. lunch, then we'd just go back to it again. <laughs> yeah. See, Italians, we Catholic Church, we don't do that. We're like, listen, we got to get in and out in an hour, and you better end right in an hour. We got. Oh my God! The first time I went to a Catholic church with a friend and they had a schedule yeah. of exactly how long the service was going to be. <laughs> like, what is this? And I was like, how the fuck do they know how long the service is going to be? 
That's great. What if God, the spirit of God moves and you got to keep dancing? Oh, no, yeah. Like, there's no dancing. There's no, yeah. I remember the first time I went to a nun. There's none of that. Yeah. You guys, there's going to be, there's going to be two songs. Here are the two songs. Then there's going to be this. And I was like, homily. What's I didn't realize a homily and a sermon were the same yeah. thing. I was like, what's a fucking homily? And why is it? And it was perfectly timed to 30 minutes and all this. And like, and then we do this. And then this happens. And then that. And you're at one o'clock. Good day. Yep. Drive, drive like, through church. We got to get shit, home. This is efficient. We got to get home. We got macaroni and meatballs to eat. We got football to watch. We do, we can't do this all day. Yeah. The first time I went to a non-Catholic church and everybody started standing up. Well, first of all, they applauded. They stood up. They were dancing. They were singing. I was like, what? the fuck is this what? you're like what <laughs> we're all going to hell you're not supposed to applaud in church what is this this is not a concert and was like, think about that that was what i knew as church and then i went to a catholic yeah. church was like, i'm like wait guys- why does he oh, have softly don't why does he have a guitar where's the harp where am i it was like very bizarre <laughs> <laughs> like plugged in, rocking You're out. Like, there's a full band. A full fucking band. No, there's, there's no organ. Oh, and I loved it. I was like, oh my god, if we can, if I, if this passes, if God's cool with me going here, I would much rather go here than sit there and sing those horrible songs that, like, in the Catholic Church, if you're not a soprano, you can't join in. There's like no, there's nothing in your yeah. key. <laughs> Uh, well, it's been amazing talking to you, Greg. I've gotten, in, I feel like I, I've known you for so long, but there's so much about you that I didn't know that I, that I really appreciate you sharing with me. Yeah. Well, Hey, listen, you know, comics are nothing if we're not honest. That's 100% true. So where can people see you? Where can they check you out? What's, what's up next for you? I know you're, you're, are you still on, um, you're not out of Vegas. You're back in LA. I did it. Yeah. I, I'm back in Vegas, uh, coming up. I'll be back. Uh, listen, I've got two wonderful August stops. First, I'll be in El Paso, uh, which is so lovely in August. Uh, I'll be there the 23rd through 25th, I believe. Let me do, let me check these dates. Okay. It's 23rd and 26th. Okay. okay, first of all, August 14th, I will be at the Laugh Factory here in Hollywood with Ben Morrison. Uh, oh, and also Saturday nights, just on the regular. If I'm in town on a Saturday night, I'm doing the Down and Dirty show. I'm the host of the Down and Dirty show at the Ha Ha Cafe. So that's on Saturday nights, including this Saturday night, okay. um, August uh, 11th. Um, then on August 17th, uh, Big Boy from the radio, I'm sure you're familiar, he's put together a comedy show. It, we're the Funny Motherfuckers. I love it. And... We have our big shows at the Ontario Improv, August 17th and 18th. I will be on the August 17th shows. And then um, if you would like to see my students perform, I'm just wrapping up a five-week workshop. They'll be performing at the Improv Lab in in Hollywood on August 18th at 4.30 in the afternoon. They give those workshop classes the best spots, but that's fine. So for the afternoon, if you want to see what how my students turn out and how my work goes, there you go with that. Um, and if and somebody then, yeah, wants August, to take, if somebody wants to take your workshop, how would they do that? You have a website or something? Uh, they it's, check out? Yes, it is thecomedyinstitute.com. Thecomedyinstitute.com. I'm about to um, I'm right now working on the uh, settling the fall schedule. So uh, we'll be having a free workshop at the end of August. And possibly another one in the beginning of September, but then in the beginning of September, we'll start with the full slate of workshops, including crowd work and riffing, um, uh, storytelling, uh, handling hecklers, which is a workshop I feel I wish every comic would take that workshop. Um, and of course, my five week program and my one master class mastering stand up at two night workshops. So those are all coming up in September, October. So check thecomedyinstitute.com. And if the new dates aren't up yet, sign up on the email list and then we'll get an email. You'll get the newsletter with the updated dates. Perfect. And then uh, when are you and back then, here in Vegas? Uh, soon. I actually talked to the booker today, and so we'll have a new date there. But I'll be in Laughlin for Memorial Day weekend at the Riverside Casino for the Laughlin Labor Day weekend comedy festival. Labor Day. You said Memorial Day. I was like, wait a minute. Next year? <laughs> oh, did I say Memorial Day? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's Labor Day. You know, oh, how fun. My, yeah, because in my phone I saved it as Memorial Weekend because I always get it mixed up. <laughs> but it's the Laughlin Labor Day comedy festival, and that is when I will be in Nevada next. And then, uh, and actually that Friday night, which I think is September or August 31st, I will be doing the dirty at 1230 at the South Point Casino there in Las Vegas. Oh, well, I'll definitely see you for that. I'm going to come down and, and please come out. That That's a great I have show to redeem myself for my last set. <laughs> I got a little too fucked up. And, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I missed that one. 
<laughs> yeah, no, listen, you missed nothing. Oh, anyways, it's the whole thing. But I'll have an amazing set this time because I have to redeem myself. So expect, uh, you know, fire and brimstone from me with the, with the symbol. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, it's been such a great, great experience having you on here. And I really appreciate you doing the show. And uh, yeah, everybody come out and check out my friend, Greg Romero Wilson. Thank you so much, dear. It's been really great. It's been a great talk. Very therapeutic. I'm ready to go get a massage now. Oh, good. Great. I'm glad I set you up for that. <laughs> so relaxed. I got so much off my chest. Yeah, good. I love it. All right, honey. Love you. Right, Thank John. you so Thank much you for doing so the much. show. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. I had the best time with you guys. That was so much fun, wasn't it? Wasn't he a great guest? I appreciate you guys tuning in. I have some dates coming up in Vegas and then uh, some dates in L.A. Everything's on my website, andreanatoli.com. And uh, send me an email if you guys have questions or thoughts or want to communicate. My email is andreanatolicomedy at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Everything's just under andreanatoli. All right. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. See ya.